Welcome to episode number 21 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're looking at creating a global community around workplace safety and industries handling combustible dust. In today's episode, we have an interview with Martin Cloutier, Director and Practice Lead of Combustible Dust Testing and Consulting Services at Jensen Hughes. And in today's interview, we're talking about combustible dust testing. So we're talking about the different processes that companies need to go through to get their dust tested. In previous episodes, we've talked a lot about dust hazard analysis, what are some of the first steps that are needed um, through the whole process of getting explosion prevention and protection installed at your facility. In today's episode, we're talking about one of those steps, that is determining the material characteristics of the dust that you're handling, determining whether or not it's explosible, flammable, combustible, and how that looks to, to industries that are using this type of testing services. So in today's interview with Martin, we go through quite a number of topics, um, understanding your material properties for your combustible dust, why that's important, the role that particle size distribution plays, the role that credible ignition sources in your facility play in determining your, your test process, the need for understanding and bringing in people with expertise in the area to help you design your test program, test screening, so understanding sampling processes and as well as determining whether or not your material is actually explosive before going through the entire suite of testing, what the different prevention and protection parameters are that we're looking for when we do combustible dust testing. Then we close on some of the challenges that we have in this area, including the, the size of the testing chambers that we're using, whether or not it's a Hardman tube, a 1.2 liter chamber, whether or not it's a 20 liter chamber or one cubic meter chamber, and the needs and difficulties in each of those. So we go through all that, all of that in this interview. I really appreciate Martin taking the time to talk through this with us. Um, they, as he mentions in the interview, have now have a, a one cubic meter chamber they have installed at their facility that they're doing testing with today. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning into this episode. This is episode 21. We've done through 20 episodes now, and the feedback has been tremendous. I know that we're helping to get the word out there. We're helping to share the education and awareness and knowledge. And I really appreciate you guys listening along and sending in feedback. So sit back, enjoy today's episode with Martin, and I look forward to sharing this great information. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's episode, we're doing an interview with Martin Cloutier, Director and Practice Leader for Combustible Dust Testing and Consulting Services at Jensen Hughes. Martin's based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia here, and he has over 25 years experience with industrial explosion protection. Martin, I want to say thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge today. Chris, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, let me uh, take this opportunity to uh, congratulate you on, on the work that you're doing in our community and uh, the significant contributions you're making to developing awareness and understanding of, of this important topic. Oh, I really appreciate that, Martin. And today's interview, we'll actually be discussing combustible dust testing. Martin has, uh, he's a member of the NFPA Technical Committees on Explosion Protection and Prevention, 67, 68, and 69. He's a member of the ASTM Hazard Materials Committee. And he's also completing his PhD here in Halifax, uh, the same lab that I, I did my PhD at as well in combustible dust testing. So he's the, he's the right person to be talking to about this topic. The reason that this topic makes sense is this is episode 21 of the podcast. In the first 20, we've talked about dust hazard analysis quite a bit. We've also talked about the international systems on how combustible dust is handled. And one of the first steps is always get your dust tested. I've had some feedback from people. Well, what does that mean? What does testing look like? Who do I contact? And that's why I wanted to bring Martin on as an expert in this area to talk about that. So in today's episode, we're talking about if your facility has dust, um, you're not sure if it's combustible, what should you do? What kind of tests should you be doing or getting done at the, the laboratory? How are the results used? And what are some of the difficulties that you might come through? 
Martin, maybe it's a jumping off point. Can you explain a bit about your current role at Jensen Hughes here in Halifax? Sure. I'm a, a director of, of a lab and uh, I oversee consulting services out of our, our office here. I work with an extended team of individuals who are subject matter experts in, in combustible dust hazards. Uh, they're located all throughout, mostly North America, but also um, other parts of, of the world. We work together basically to, to help clients mitigate uh, the potential consequences of a combustible dust explosion. We also help uh, prevent, prevent uh, these hazards from occurring. Right now, uh, about three years ago, we established a state-of-the-art lab in Halifax to uh, test characterize the hazards associated with dust. And, and the main reason that we wanted to do that is because in our consulting work and performing DHAs, we wanted to have direct access to the lab so that we could have an important input on how the materials are tested. Because as you well know, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners understand, that it, particle size has a dominant effect on the reactivity of a dust. And ASTM e 1226, and maybe we're getting, I'm getting ahead of myself in the discussion, but it recommends that you test the material uh, 95% less than 75 micron. And if that's not representative of the material that's at your facility, then you may end up with an overly conservative result where you're being asked to provide explosion protection where it's not warranted. So it's important to understand the particle size distribution that is representative of the dust that's involved with your process at various stages of your process. Um, there's a number of other kind of ways that we customize our testing. Layer uh, ignition temperature, for example, um, we've developed some mathematical models to predict the maximum, maximum levels before uh, a credible ignition source could develop, that sort of, that sort of thing. So I want to kind of stay, take a step back there because it's an important point that you said. So this this lab was really established about three years ago or started building up. And I was fortunate enough that that since Martin's here in Halifax and he's actually a a good friend of mine in the space that that I've seen the lab go from um, the first location and getting, you know, hoods put in and getting a testing equipment put in and then how they've built and expanded. But the the point that I, I wanted to make was was the the connection between the consulting world and the testing world, it's often quite difficult from my understanding for these industries if you have to deal with a whole bunch of different people. And it's nice to have that, that capability in host where you can have an expert come in, subject matter expert, and they have access to the right testing. They know what the right testing is going to be and, and they know that they're, they're going to get the results quickly and get that in. So I applaud you and Jensen Hughes for setting that up um, as, as an important contribution to the community. Thank you. I, I love I love that you said that, and and it is true. Um, often, one of the biggest challenges we face as consulting or engineers or safety practitioners is we we get a call from a client saying, "Okay, I've spent five thousand or ten thousand or fifteen thousand dollars on testing. Here's all the data. Um, now we need to do a DHA." And and what happens is sometimes they do the testing that's not required. Sometimes they do testing that's not uh, the way that we would have tested to get to the bottom of the question of, is there a credible hazard? Is there a credible ignition source? What are the potential consequences? So 
it's really ideal for an industrial plant operator to work with the consultant to determine what testing you're going to do and, and how you're going to use the data. So I advocate we're not trying to make a, a, a profit from, from our material testing. Our, our rates are quite low. And what, what we want to do is just have the opportunity to work with our clients at the beginning of, of this to, to pick the sampling points, to develop a sampling strategy, and then to develop a testing strategy. I'll give you an example. There's two ways that you can test for minimum ignition energy. One is with inductance and the other is without. Some labs in North America will default, by default, test the material with inductance. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can get a, a, a minimum ignition energy out of that test with inductance that's one order or more, one order of magnitude or more lower than if you had done the test without inductance. Uh, minimum ignition energy test without inductance basically is much more representative of electrostatic discharge. So if your minimum ignition energy of your material is low enough that you need to be concerned about electro incendiary electrostatic discharge, you, you want to know what the minimum ignition energy as it pertains to electrostatic discharge. So you would want to test it without inductance. So often we'll receive a test report from a client before we became involved with the DHA and, and the client went ahead and tested for MIE with inductance and it turns out to be too low and all these extraordinary measures are required to prevent electrostatic ignition. And then what we have to recommend is that they test the material again without inductance so that we can really get to the bottom of whether or not special extraordinary precautions are required for uh, mitigating the potential for incendiary electrostatic discharge. I like that example. And I'm going to actually re recap a couple of things there because I think it's important to understand these different steps, Steve, before you get your dust tested. But one you mentioned was particle size distribution. And that's really, that's really the key differentiator in my mind between facility A and facility B. If you have a slightly different line or you're running at different velocities or using a slightly different material, you'll have a different particle size distribution. And that could end up in a whole different testing result than the other size. So that's why every facility needs tailor, tailor-made testing. But beyond that, you could have different ignition, potential ignition sources. Um, it could be sparking, it could be open flame, it could be electrostatic discharge. And what depending on what's going on in your facility, that will also change to the kind of testing process that you might need. And that's really about collecting that information together. Okay, this is my power size distribution, this is my material, this is how often I change materials. So if I'm using something different, um, and these are my critical ignition, credible ignition sources. And then we can set up a testing program. And, and that's really where a company like Jensen Hughes comes in to, to start doing that. Well, they may come in at the very front role in the consulting as well, but maybe we'll do a summary of the type of tests. And I'll give, I'll give some of them and I may, may touch on, on a number, but you can tell me what's missing. And then maybe just kind of walk through them a little bit. Sure. Bef before you do that, Chris, I, I just want to emphasize the point you just made. Uh, KST, MIE, LOC, all those different um, explosibility parameters of dust, and, and maybe this has been discussed in, in, in your previous podcast, but it's not a fundamental property. You can't look it up in a table, cocoa or wood dust, or and 
use a literature value. It could be used as a reference to give you an idea of how easily the material could be ignited or how severely it will react. But the, the reality is, because they're not fundamental properties, it varies from facility to facility. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I get that a lot. Email, people email me and say, I'm using a whey powder. Is that the same as uh, you know, a different type of, of, of grain-based powder? And, and the answer is, well, it really depends. You could have whey powder A and whey powder B. Um, and you need to, to really understand the specific characteristics. Yeah. For the different tests, so Martin said some acronyms there that I'll, I'll spell out. The different type of tests that you can have um, on prevention include minimum explosible concentration, MEC, limiting oxygen concentration, LOC, minimum ignition energy, MIE. Um, then there's some more kind of specific ones, minimum auto ignition temperature. So how, what temperature will a cloud ignite at, M-A-I-T, and layer ignition temperature. So if the dust is in a layer. So those are all really governing prevention, keeping the dust below the explosive concentration or keeping the oxygen below, keeping the ignition sources below what can ignite the dust, keeping the temperatures low enough that they don't ignite the dust. On the other side, you have protection. So this is your Pmax, um, your maximum pressure that uh, a dust can generate in a closed vessel. And then your rate of pressurize. And you hear about this quite a bit as KST, which is really governing the, the reactivity of the dust. Is that a good summary of the different parameters that we might be looking at? Or am I missing anything there, Martin, for the, for the listeners? No, I think that's a, a good division of, of the parameters. There's, there's two things that you, you look at. You, you characterize how violently uh, or the, the, the potential violence of the explosion, and then you test what the ignition sensitivity is. So I like that. And I like that you, you did an example at the start. And maybe we'll, we'll take some time and run through an example, sort of start to finish. So I have a facility. Um, and we didn't actually pre-plan this example, so we will uh, we'll go ahead as we as it comes to us. But I run a facility. I've heard that. Uh, well, let's take cocoa dust. Cocoa dust is explosible or flammable or combustible. I've seen some reports in maybe in different country that it was. Um, and I want to know about my dust. So, what is the the kind of first step? Maybe I've, I've contacted Jensen Hughes, and they've instructed me about sampling. How would I go about collecting those samples? Is there a specific place I should take them from? Or what's the process look like there? Well, I think that in an ideal world, the first step is for a client calls you up and says, we've got a process. We know that our material can be explosible at, in, certain, in certain conditions, at certain particle size distributions. We need to do the right thing. And the right thing is basically to identify hazards where there could be fire or explosion hazards, identify those, look at existing measures, compare those existing protective measures with good engineering practice exemplified in the NFPA standards. If there are any gaps, you make recommendations to address those gaps. Uh, an important opportunity to help the client is to really get to the bottom of the material properties as they pertain to the process. So to answer your question, client calls me up. Uh, the first step is for us to say, please send us a, a, a process flow diagram or even a PNID, a, a piping and instrumentation diagram so that we can understand the process. And we, we visit the facility and observe how the material is handled at each stage. And that's where we develop a sampling strategy. 
so that we we get the material that is representative uh, at the stage of the process that we're that we're examining. So, for example, uh, at the beginning of a cocoa processing facility, uh, they they han- handle raw cocoa, and it's uh, it's not in in the powder form. But as they hand handle the beans and through bucket elevators and and front end loaders. Um, the material breaks down and you will get a dust accumulation in, in the bucket elevator. So clearly the dust, the, the material that's, that's accumulating inside the bucket elevator is going to be very different from the powder that's being collected through a dust collector at the end of the process. So it, it really, what it's a collaborative exercise where the consultant works with the client to develop an intimate and, and deep understanding of their process so that they can make a judicious selection of where samples should be taken so that they get the best answers, the right data for the least amount of money. That makes a, a lot of sense. And I think it's good to add that extra, that extra bit to the front about actually helping and guiding to get the right samples um, up front, so we're testing the right material. So now we have our material and sent it in. Do we go straight to these these uh, suite of tests that I that I mentioned, or is there some sort of I don't know, screening or anything that goes on before that? Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a good question, Chris. I mean, some people, some clients go for the default, which is the the OSHA suite of testing. And although I'd love it if every client did that, it's not in their best interest because they end up with a bunch of data they may never use. So if you, for example, first off, you need, because particle size has such a dominant influence on the reactivity of the material, if the particle size distribution, there's there's a limiting point at which if the particles are so big, they become not explosible. So the first key step, obviously, is to determine in a standardized way, is the material explosible or not? So that's a simple test. You collect the material that's representative of the part of the process that you're evaluating, and you take that sample and you test it as is, as received. And uh, we do what's called a go-no-go test. And usually, so some some folks use the the Hartman tube to do an initial screening test, but you can't rely on that uh, because it just because it doesn't ignite in the Hartman tube doesn't mean that it won't ignite in a twenty liter sphere or a cubic meter chamber. So you, what you need to do is. Basically, you could use the Hartman tube. If it ignites in the Hartman tube, then you're, you're guaranteed it's going to go on the 20 liter and it's going to go on the cubic meter. But the first step is to, is to determine whether or not the material is explosible uh, via a go-no-go test. And, and the procedures for that are, are, are outlined in, in ASTM E1226. Perfect. That's a, that's a great point. It's kind of like a, a flow diagram if you think of it, right? Do I have dust? Okay, I do have dust. Is my you know, I contact somebody and, and figure out, do I have a potential issue with the, the equipment I'm using? Can this dust accumulate? Uh, what should my sampling be? And then, okay, well, is this dust now actually a, flam- a flame hazard, a flammable hazard, a combustibility hazard? Is it an explosion hazard? And then you, you kind of pick your different branches. Um, so we've done the screening test now and we've determined that our, our dust is explosable. And I actually want to take a, a step back. You mentioned a couple of pieces of equipment that I just want to 
to summarize. So we have the Hartman tube, which is many of the folks that have listening to this have probably seen it. It's kind of like a, a glass tube. It's about two liters, I believe. So the size of a, a milk carton. And it's, it's a lot smaller than the other testing vessels. You have the 20 liter chamber, which is a little bit bigger. That's kind of your desktop um, version about the size of your, probably your computer monitor. You have the one cubic meter chamber, which is quite a bit bigger. Um, you wouldn't want to do this necessarily, but you could probably get up and curl in there. It's, it's pretty big. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, Martin may have done that at one point. Yeah, I may have almost fallen in one or two at, at, at different occasions trying to clean it out. But um, yeah, the Hartman tube is 1.2 liters. And that was um, in the early days of, of combustible dust testing. That was the go-to apparatus. But what they were trying to do, one of the biggest challenges in testing for, for dust reactivity is scalability. So there's ways to provide explosion protection different ways. And, and, the, and the two key methods are uh, ex explosion protection by deflagration venting or explosion suppression. Both of those methods need to know what the reactivity of the material is, how, what, how fast the material burns, what's the maximum rate of pressurize. So the rate of pressurize really has an impact on how big the vent needs to be or how capable the, the suppression system needs to be. So um, th it's, it, it all started with, with the 1.2 liter Hartman tube, but people were finding that that the rates of pressurize that they were measuring in the Hartman tube were not representative of the rates of pressurize that they were observing in much larger pieces of equipment. So they, they couldn't use it to design explosion protection because it would, in some cases, underestimate. I don't think we have time to go into the, the physics of why that was happening, but um, a lot of research was done to determine how small a vessel can we use to actually measure the maximum rate of pressurize and the maximum pressure of the material? And uh, a gentleman, uh, Richard Sivak, made, made a case for using the 20-liter chamber. And that, that was very appealing to industry. It was very appealing to safety practitioners because it was a bench-scale apparatus that could be used. And you didn't need a ton of dust. You, you, it was, uh, didn't take up a lot of space. It didn't weigh two and a half tons. So the 20 liter has been predominant. It's the workhorse in industry in terms of helping uh, explosion protection designers do it correctly. They need that parameter. The uh, cubic meter is the gold standard for testing. Uh, it's large vessel. It's much more representative of industrial equipment. And uh, the problem though is it takes up a lot of space. It weighs two and a half tons. It's very uh, intensive to, to determine a KST uh, and Pmax uh, using the cubic meter chamber. So there are very few of them in North America. To my knowledge, I think there's one commercial testing uh, where, where they strictly do commercial testing in the cubic meter. Um, I know that uh, Fike has one as well. Um, and I'm very happy to say that uh, Jensen Hughes has purchased uh, a cubic meter. We're, we're putting it together now. And um, we're actually the only commercial testing lab in Canada. And we're one of, I think, uh, three in North America that companies that actually have a cubic meter chamber. So we're really proud of that. And it's going to, um, it really puts us in the top tier 
of uh, service providers that, that, that do this type of testing. I'd add to that. Actually, I want to want to start by just reiterating the, the points that Martin made there. It's really this whole size of your testing vessel. It's a it's weighing between the industrial relevance of the results you're getting. So they're finding that the 1.2 liter was under predicting rates of pressurize that, that wouldn't be seen in industrial size scale vessels. So you're talking about a big dust collector or a cyclone or a sifter or whatever your, your equipment is. That big piece of equipment wasn't being well represented by the smaller chamber. Um, so they had to make it bigger. The question was, the bigger you make it, the more dust you need to actually test. And when Martin says you don't need a ton of dust to test in the 20-liter chamber, he's actually right because you do need a ton, literally, of dust to test in the one cubic meter chamber. So then you have the other side. You have your economics of doing the testing. Um, and there's been a lot of research to figure out where that those two cross. And a lot of the, we'll call them common dusts, cross right around 20 liters. So that was the standard for a long time. But we've now found that there's a whole suite of cases where the 20-liter may not be applicable to your larger scale apparatus depending on the reactivity of the dust, depending on the apparatus you're running. In those cases, you really want to go testing at something that's more relevant to your, your large-scale chamber. And those are your large-scale dust collector or cyclone or whatever it is. And those would be your, your one cubic meter test. So before having access to this testing, companies would do the 20-liter test and they get a result. And then they would always say, well, um, and, and obviously I haven't done this testing, but this is what I've heard. They'd always say, well, okay, that's great to know, but am I in the part of the curve that's a common dust and we know that's the result? Or am I in the part of the curve where we don't know that that's you know, safe and do we have to do one cubic meter testing? And when we didn't have access to any of those chambers um, here in North America, is there was only one for a long time, then there were two, and, and now there's three with, with the addition here in Canada. It was kind of like you're, you're out of luck. There's nothing we can do. So adding another cubic meter to the, the test and adding or to the, the suite of possible testing in North America and and then allowing companies to get answers when they don't, when they're on that part of the curve that's not well explained, is is actually a big undertaking. And I'm sure it's not, a, you know, it's not an easy task to get it in place and get it up and running because more companies would have done it if it was. So I do want to say thank you for Jensen Hughes for Martin for setting that up. I think it's important. Um, so with that, maybe we'll we'll try to leave with what are some of the difficulties, the open difficulties in combustible dust testing. They're still around today, and we may even expand a bit on this. Maybe we'll say a term you hear quite a bit in industry: marginally explosible dust, where the dust is, I'm going to say, kind of in air quotes, explosible, whatever that means. It's uh, it's weakly explosible, or it's um, a small explosion. Maybe if I can, and this may this may cause Martin to go on a, on a large rant. We will see. But um, <laughs> is there anything around there that we should discuss? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot, we're getting a lot of, um, there are other consultants who are doing DHAs for clients. And sometimes we, we get a, a material that produces a relatively low KST uh, in bar meters per second, a low KST in, in the 20 liter chamber something less than than 50 bar meters per second and there's a lot there's a myth there's confusion in industry that if a dust is less than 50 uh, bar meters per second for kst that that it may not be found to be explosible in the cubic meter chamber i i actually think that the term marginally explosible th this is actually the topic of my my research for for my doctoral studies is getting to the bottom of the discrepancies between the 20-liter chamber and the cubic meter chamber. So in a nutshell, 
what some uh, operators and researchers are concerned about is the the ignition source that's used in the 20 liter chamber and the cubic meter chamber the energy is the same it's it's both 10 both vessels the default is 10 kilojoules you can drop the the 20 liter down to 5 kilojoules but basically the problem is called overdriving and i don't think we have time to go into there should maybe be a part two of this uh, podcast and we'll link to martin's thesis when it's available yeah (laughs) specifically to talk about this issue because with some organic materials if you test it in the 20 liter chamber it might show to be explosible but then when you test it in the cubic meter chamber, you don't get an explosible result. So the issue there is that operators are testing in the only vessel available to them because either they can't collect enough powder or they can't get a test done in time. And they test it in the 20 liter and they're told, okay, this material is explosible. So now you've got to provide explosion protection. You've got to uh, do a DHA. You've got to... Um, you know, jump through some some hoops, and and that's important because it's to do with preventing major accidents. Um, but if they had access to a cubic meter and then they tested it, they may find that it's not explosible, but it may pose a flash fire hazard. And if you have that situation, then the approach that you take towards protecting your plant will be very different. On the other hand, there's some materials like metallics where if you test it in the 20 liter, you'll get a bigger answer than uh, a bigger KST than you would in in the cubic meter or vice versa. So for example, if you take fine, fine aluminum and you test it in the 20 liter chamber, we've done testing to show that it is overdriven in the 20 liter fine uh, material, nominally 30 microns for a, a median particle size. And when you test it in the cubic meter, you actually get a a lesser value for KST. If you take the exact same material, aluminum, but you increase the particle size distribution to a median uh, size on the order of 150 microns, uh, you will end up getting much larger KSTs, almost uh, up to twice uh, the value in, in the cubic meter compared to the result that you get in, in the 20 liter chamber. And, and that's concerning. And, and what's happened in, in uh, the NFPA 68, the standard for explosion protection by deflagration venting, there's a recommendation in there for certain metallics to actually take the KST value that was determined in the 20 liter chamber and double it for your design. So you can see that there's there's a, there are cases where we take an overdriven aluminum, fine aluminum in the 20 liter and then we double it again that's that's um, onerous uh, that's that's uh, that's a heavy burden to start uh, designing equipment by uh, making it overly conservative doubling a value that's already too high. So we have some work to get, to do on the committee to refine that recommendation. And I think that um, the research that we're doing now at Dalhousie University will help inform uh, the next step, the next iteration of that standard. Yes, I think that's a, that's a great place to end off. And I'll do kind of a short summary, but we, we started by just what is combustible dust testing? 
it's a need to understand the material properties of the the powders that you're handling or the dust that's generated from breakdown of the materials you're handling. We talked about things like particle size distribution. We talked about knowing the ignition energies in your system, combining those two together to come up with an appropriate program of testing. We talked about getting help, actually bringing somebody in that has expertise in this area um, and can guide you on the, the right sampling procedure. This will probably save you money in the long run. And I'm sure Martin has many case studies of, of where it does, but we probably don't have time to go through them all. Sampling, where to actually pick your dust. Again, an expert can help you a lot with this. Um, screening, testing, go, no, go. Is it combustible or explosible? Do you need to go down the route of paying for, for all these tests? Um, and if you do, it's important because then, like Martin said, in order to be safe, you need to know these parameters. We talked about prevention and protection parameters. And we talked about the, the different types of tests. Then we got into the challenges. Okay, well, can we use a Mar- uh, Hartman tube, a 1.2 liter vessel? Can we use a 20 liter vessel? Can we use a one cubic meter chamber? And there's a whole bulk of knowledge, 40, 50, 60 years going back to US Bureau of Mines and even before, um, like Martin mentioned with Richard Seebeck out of, uh, out of Europe as well, um, that's, that has a lot of experience in this area. But then there's a lot of dust that we're creating now that we, don't, we weren't using back then, or we weren't using as frequently. And there's some open-ended issues there that, that NPA is working on that people like Martin, um, Dalhousie University has, has put in a huge project over the last number of years. It wasn't necessarily part of my thesis work, but Dr. Paul Amiot there has, has really brought the experts together, these subject matter experts. Um, and in that test, in that uh, suite of, of um, research program, they actually brought together the, all the, the major testing facilities in Canada and the United States to, to do combined round-robin testing on that. Um, and we're trying to crack that nut on these different things. So it's, it's really good to get Martin on to discuss that and to bring his you know, 25 years of, of understanding this area into one place. So Martin, I just want to say thank you again for being on the podcast. I would certainly um, extend the viewers to, to look at Martin's research papers as they come out and his thesis work. And we will certainly have, once we know the answer to overdriving, we'd definitely love to have you on the podcast to discuss that again as well. I would love to do that. It's a, it's a real privilege to be... Uh part of this discussion and uh, this podcast series. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's a really big contribution to our community. I appreciate it, Martin. I look forward to talking soon. Thank you. So I really enjoyed that episode and got to cover a lot of ground on combustible dust testing, what the different steps are, what the different parameters that we're looking at, and what industry should actually be doing and thinking of when they're going through this process. As Martin mentioned, his PhD thesis is on this topic, and it's uh, at Dalhousie University through a project that they're doing with a number of industry partners. Um, I've actually seen this project, it it wasn't part of my thesis, but I've seen it develop over the last number of years. And they're actually making a big dent in understanding some of these challenges with explosion testing, especially with these new materials that aren't well characterized by the previous testing methods. We covered a lot of ground in this interview, and we covered a lot of topics that uh, really could be podcast interviews themselves. Things like, what is KST? minimum exposable concentration, what are all these different parameters, differences between flash fires and explosions, difference between flammability, combustibility, and explosibility. If you have any questions, we will cover these in future topics. But if you want to help guide us in this, you can actually go ask a question at Dust Safety Science. If you go to dustsafetyscience.com slash ask, A-S-K, um, you can either leave a video recording there or send us a text message or a message in text and, and ask something specific about this episode or previous episodes and we'll bring somebody on to actually answer that in a, in a future episode. And that's a really good way to, to get your questions answered. If there's something you're seeing every day in a facility, then that would be a, a big 
way or a good way to help the community better understand that. We'll bring subject matter experts on to talk about that topic. You can find the show notes for this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 21. If you want to connect with Martin and learn more about Jensen Hughes and their testing facility, you can do that through the show notes. We'll have his contact information at the end. And beyond that, I hope everyone listening has a safe and productive week ahead. I look forward to next week's episode of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Mm-hmm.